Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast, a place where we discuss the genre of horror in film, in books, and in popular culture. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Bruce Markison, and um, as is almost always the case, I'm joined by co-host and producer Tracy Asteria. Tracy, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. Had a chance to visit one of my favorite cities, Salem, Mass, last week, and we'll have to talk about that on one of our upcoming episodes. But we've got a lot to address with our guest this week. And our guest today is somebody I like to describe, and I hope he doesn't mind this description. He's a, a, a horror renaissance man. His name is Josh Hitchens. And Josh has really done it all. He is an author. He is an actor uh, on stage. Uh, he is a paranormal historian and someone who really keeps his hand on all things horror. Josh, welcome to the program. We're glad to have you on. How are you? I'm great, and I am so thrilled to be here. I've been loving every episode of the podcast so far. Well, we do appreciate your support, and I, I want to take a few moments here to talk about some of the things that you've done. Uh, you've written a couple of books that I'm aware of, Haunted History of Delaware and Haunted History of Philadelphia, both out through Arcadia Publishing, which does a very nice job with their books. Uh, you have been a storyteller for the Ghost Tour of Philadelphia. Uh, you have hosted a podcast called Going Dark Theater, and you've also done uh, Hitchens on Horror, and I've listened to a number of those programs through Patreon. And you have done a, a long series of one-man plays. This list is pretty amazing. The Confession of Jeffrey Dahmer, Ghost Stories, Stoker's Dracula, A Christmas Carol, Shelley's Frankenstein, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, uh, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and I think you've done a few others as well. So those are just some of your many accomplishments. And actually, it took so long that we ran out of time. Thanks for coming on the show, Josh. We appreciate it. <laughs> well, a lot of things that we could touch upon. We're going to try to touch on as many things as we can. So obviously, you have an all-encompassing and very versatile uh, love of horror and accomplishment within the genre of horror. Let me ask you first, Josh, how and when did this love of horror begin? Really, since I was a very, very young child. Uh, I don't remember exactly when it started, but from the time I was very, very young, I was always interested in uh, horror things, you know, reading true ghost stories and local ghost stories, you know, watching, you know, Disney's excellent Legend of Sleepy Hollow cartoon adaptation, which is still the best adaptation of that story that has ever been made. Uh, and reading as I got older, of course, like Alfred Schwartz's um, interpretations of folklore, the scary stories to tell in the dark books and in mm. a dark, dark room. I loved all of those and then sort of graduated to reading, you know, Dra I read Dracula for the first time when I was eight years old. Uh, and I got to up all the way up to the point of the staking of Lucy, and it was absolutely horrifying to me. So I put the book away uh, for another year or two and then came back to it. And I am, as many of your guests have been, uh, a, a fan of Dark Shadows from a very young age. Um, my Both my mother and my uncle 
uh, my uncle sadly no longer with us, uh, but both of them watched the show when it was first on and um, really transferred that love of Dark Shadows to me. And I was fortunate to uh, become old enough to watch it when it started being released on VHS uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s and collected those. And I've always just loved the feeling of being scared uh, and scaring other people. Um, mm -hmm. I find that horror, like comedy, is a thing that un that unites us. And that's always been a really powerful thing to me. And also preserving you know, local folklore and legends and history, um, I think, is a very important work to do. So your mother and uncle, they were both very supportive of this from day one. Uh, my uh, my uncle for sure. My uncle was sort of uh, uh, abetted my love of horror. My mom was supportive to a point. Like I, she didn't want it to be like I would always take like the spooky books out of like the school library and like elementary school and such. And I remember at one point she was like, "I just you know don't want that to be all you read," um, <laughs> which I think which which is great, you know, because it did. You know, we were big readers in my family anyway. Um, so reading was something that was very encouraged from a very young age. So, you know, but she, I think, was a very, very good parent uh, in that moment that she's like, yes, you can read this stuff, but also there's all this other stuff over here. How about Anne of Green Gables? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> yeah, which I also love very much uh, and wrote a play and wrote an adaptation of. Um, oh, so it's, nice. it's not it's not all spooky stuff, but mostly spooky stuff. And at what point did you decide, yeah, I'd really like to do some acting? Did, did that come at an early age too? No, actually not. Um, you know, it, it, a lot of the, the a lot of the folks I know who do theater started at a very young age, like started like theater camps when they were in elementary school and, st and stuff like that. But it never really occurred to me until I was in the eighth grade um, and we went on a field trip to the high school, which I would be attending the next year, which was just down the road from the middle school. And uh, they took us to see the drama club's production of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, it was my first encounter with Shakespeare and really with my, I, with theater like that. Like I'd seen a few like kid shows when I was growing up that you know I enjoyed but didn't make that much of an impression on me. But when I saw that production of Midsummer Night's Dream that the high school was doing when I was in the eighth grade, I still remember remember the moment very vividly watching it and just like feeling in my soul like this is what I want to do. I want to mm. do that. That's what I want. And so the next year uh, when I started high school in the ninth grade, I start I you know started the drama club and started doing theater then and have been doing it ever since. Oh, nice. Did you have anybody that in particular was a predominant influence in your career? Like, did you admire any actors or actresses, directors, writers? Was there somebody that was a key influence in your career? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I think the first big influence on my career and is still in some cases the largest influence i've had was the teacher of the high of theater at the high school i went to um in mm -hmm. georgetown delaware uh her name was helen barlow uh and she was 
to this day, uh, still one of, with all apologies to my university professors who are wonderful, uh, but she was such a phenomenal teacher. And what she really instilled in me, what I, what I took from, you know, the teaching she did is that like a belief in the magic of theater, that things can happen on stage with an audience in that communion together that can't happen anywhere else. Um, and I've really never forgotten that, um, never, never lost the magic of it. And I think that's very important. Um, and yeah, I didn't really start mm-hmm. paying attention to actors and dire- actors and directors until I really started doing, doing theater in high school um, and then really started seeking them out. Um, and I would say for myself as a theater, direct, a theater director in particular, but you know, as an artist in general, uh, David Lynch is really mm-hmm. probably my biggest inspiration. Uh, I, the thing I, one of the things I really admire about him is that all of his work, you can tell watching it, is such a pure expression that comes from within him. That you know, it's not trying mm-hmm. to be this or that. That it is just a purely coming from from his from his mind and his soul. And I think. You know whether it's a beautiful thing or you know a horrific thing sometimes both together uh but he has one of the quote the, one of the quotes i love uh is that as an artist you have to stay true to the idea you fell in love with and that's something that i really carry through all my work because it's so easy as as all of us know like who work in the arts in different capacities like it's very it's very, you know, there's lots of roadblocks that come up and sometimes like, oh, okay, I have to compromise, have to compromise, do this, you know, but what I try and carry with me is like things change and evolve, but like, is it still the thing that I really love, the idea I really loved? Is that still there? Is that still pure? You know, even if it's in a slightly different form than I initially envisioned. Um, But yeah, he's a huge influence and I, was extremely lucky to be able to interview him a couple years ago for Philadelphia Weekly during the brief time I worked there. Um, mm. And that was a 15 minute conversation that I will treasure always. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, that's wonderful. Those are actually, that's really good advice to live by too. So thank you for bringing that up. And he is, he's, he's a, he's a wonderful director and that's, that's great. I'm so glad you had a chance to speak with him in person. Yeah, it was wild. <laughs> I couldn't believe it was happening. That's always like, interesting. I, I still have the audio. Rec- I have, of course, the audio recording of our conversation. And, you know, first I call his assistant and I'm he's like, oh, let me find David for you. And I'm waiting on the line, wait, you know, and then he just goes, hi, Josh. And you can hear me on the recording go, hello. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, nice. One of the plays that you've done is Confessions of Jeffrey Dahmer. I would think, you know, since it's obviously it's a real life serial killer, it's someone of recent memory. So a a lot of people of a certain age, you know, know the stories, know about the the real life horror that took place. I I would think that'd be an especially challenging role. Yeah, it is definitely by far the hardest uh acting job i have ever done probably ever will do um it's one that has been immensely rewarding to me i've done it 
I think four or five different iterations of it over over the years, and I'm I'm hoping to do it one more time, eventually. I don't know when. Um, but yeah, and that was that writing that play was a very was a very long process. I started writing it when I was in playwriting class in college uh, at Arcadia University, actually, and worked on it probably refining it for about a decade um, before. I felt like, yeah, this this is what it this is what it is. This is what mm-hmm. it needs to be. And that play, I would say about nine eight about ninety percent of the text is Jeff Dahmer's own words um, from mm-hmm. his confession uh, to the police from in many many interviews that he did subsequent to his arrest and imprisonment. Um, so there, there's nothing in the play that is made up or fictionalized. Like it is every everything that hap- that he talks about in the play really happened, um, and a lot of it is is from his from his own mouth. Um, so yeah, that that's been a really uh, that's probably the play I am most proud of. Um, I'm very hmm. very proud of that work. Oh my gosh, what was it like getting into the character? That must have been that must have been a huge experience, like a character of that magnitude. What what was your thoughts and your process to get into that role? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was a very a long process, and I was very fortunate to have the person who directed the piece, uh, who is also prob- my best friend. His name is Ryan Walter, mm-hmm. um, and is no like we've known each other for years and years like we know each other's work inside and out um so he was really invaluable in that process um to sort of help me through it and you know let me know that like i that i didn't have to carry all of it alone um because really the thing about inhabiting him uh is perhaps not what you might expect uh the heart the hardest thing is perhaps not what you might expect Mm -hmm. the hardest thing was just the immense the immense loneliness uh in him um because that was really at the at the core of everything he did you know because of things that happened to him growing up in his adolescence like his parents divorcing you know basically abandoning him um you know there were so many times growing up like in high school like that te- like an adult should have said something like an adult like he would come to school drunk every mm-hmm. day and no one ever did anything about it you know and that's a big part of what the play is about is that it's it is not a let's let's you know wallow in the terrible things that this per- that this person did to 17 other human beings mm-hmm. it's it, it it's really a cry a cry for social justice and reform in some and in a lot of ways that, that like when we see, like we because we see it every day like pe- people we know or people we know in passing we can see that they are in pain just by looking at them right. and so often we don't say anything we don't do anything like we don't say hey are you okay um and if someone had done had done that early on maybe th- maybe 17 people would have been alive uh but like the big thing for him was like he was mortally fearful of being left alone um mm-hmm. and could not trust that another human being would 
not leave him at some point, which is a big part of the reason why he killed people, um, as far as what he said. Uh, and that's a that was a really difficult thing to sit with. And I think you know the first two times I did the show, uh, it it really took a toll on my mental health. Uh, to mm. be honest, you know, right. it's just a, you know it's a very hard person to exist in for 90 minutes. <laughs> um, hmm. And I think it was the third time we did the show, which is I think when we really, you know, perfected it in a way. And Ryan and I is before we started rehearsing for it, he sat me down. He was like, I want to know everything you know. Like I want you I want you to show me like the things you the things you've read. I want you to show me the documentaries you've watched. Like I want to know what you know. Mm-hmm. Um because I I've literally read and watched everything that is publicly available about him and some things that are not. And I can't tell you how I got that access to that information because I'll get people in trouble. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so that was really helpful, um, you know, to, again, to share that and not have to carry that burden alone. And then it could move from me sort of live, like living, like experiencing the character to move into, I am playing the character. You know, and not that, like, that's any less good. It's better, in fact. But, like, that it, you know, it it didn't affect me personally as much, which is important. uh, Because, you know, with theater, with any kind of acting or whatever, like, you never never want it to, like, be a detriment to your mental health. It's not supposed to be that way. Um, Mm -hmm. So eventually we found a way for me to do it safely uh, and to really tell that story um, the way it needs need to be told. Oh, that's great to hear. Cause I know just that would be such a big character to try to put yourself into his mindset and to know that you had a good support factor in mm-hmm. place is, is huge. So I'm really happy to hear that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thank you. Josh, I'm curious what you thought of the Netflix series that came out last year, Evan Peters playing Jeffrey Dahmer. I, I watched it. I, I had mixed feelings on it. What'd you think? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, when when that uh, first came out, I I actually, as I was watching it on on my Facebook page for every episode, I fact checked it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and on the whole, I did. I liked it, um, which is hard. Which is hard for me in some ways to say because i because like knowing all that i know like i you know i i feel a certain sort of way about the story and how that story is portrayed um but i felt for the most part that series did a really excellent job uh i really loved how it for most of the series it it did its best to center the victims and the families of the victims, because I feel like if if you're going to tell that story, especially in the medium of film or television, the only reason for you to tell for you to tell it is to tell it from that perspective, um, because mm-hmm. it so often hasn't been told from that perspective in the past. You know, a lot of the movies that were released before then, like very much center Jeff and his experience, and you know the you know the the victims are just are just bodies you know and they don't honor their humanity and the immense Mm. 
loss of that humanity that was inflicted on their families by this man. Um, you know, in particular in the Dahmer Netflix series, I loved the episode that um, was pretty much like from from the point of view of Tony Hughes, uh, who was the the vic one victim of him uh, of Jeff, who was deaf, uh, yeah. and that like most of the episode is silent and it's just sign language. Like I thought that was really beautifully done. Where that sh and I thought Evan Peters did a really wonderful job really wonderful job um as as jeff actually uh especially when he was in his teen years which i wasn't quite expecting but he really took care to get the voice right you know and they're, like they're very specific like mannerisms that Dahmer had like how, just how he held him how he carried himself mm -hmm. weight like what he thing ways he used his mouth and like just facial expressions or or lack thereof sometimes and I thought Evan Peters really did a great job of, of getting that mostly correct. Where that series uh, kind of fell apart for me was after uh, Dahmer was arrested and then the final couple episodes where he's in prison. Uh, that for me is when it stopped. Like, I felt like I wanted it to end with his arrest. Um, mm. Because once it moved into him in prison, it became, it became a show about him. Whereas before I felt he, it was a show that was about his life, but also was about, you know, the 17 men and boys that he killed and their families. So, you know, but at the very end of the last episode, I did like that they, they finally in like the last like 15 minutes brought it back, you know, where Niecy Nash is trying to get the memorial um, built for the victims on the site of his apartment building, which still has never been built. It's still a vacant lot. Mm. Um, and then the show ending with all, all 17 of their faces. I thought they, they, they course corrected at the end. Um, yeah. But yeah. So I would say like, I like 75% successful, <laughs> I guess, for that show. Based on your research, Josh, the way that it was presented, uh, he was, brutally beaten by another inmate and that's what caused his death that that's pretty accurate right yes that is um yeah, yeah and that the guard and it's it's also accurate that the guards just happened to just not be around um during that time and and it is also worth mentioning that it was Dahmer and another inmate as well who were both killed um in right. that in that moment yeah mm, wow Let's talk about some of your other one-man plays. One that I think maybe you've done more than any other is Stoker's Dracula. I believe I heard you tell Ed Pettit on Sundays with Dracula a few years back that you, you've done that over 50 times? Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, yeah. That, in, that and my Christmas Carol are the two I've done the most, for sure. Is that just because they're popular topics, they get requested by various venues, or do you particularly like those topics too? I think it's both. Like, I think they're both um, stories that a people people know very well, and are excited by the novelty of like of one person telling this story and becoming all all the characters within it. You know that I think that's inherently interesting to folks, for which I'm extremely grateful. Yeah. Um, but they're all they're also those are the first two solo shows that I adapted and performed christmas carol was the first and then dracula i did the year after that uh so they they both have a very special place in my in my heart like personally you know christmas carol 
is honestly one of my favorite stories ever written. Like I, I find, I think it is a story that is still so neat, so needed um, in mm -hmm. our, in our world. Uh, and Dracula, again, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, like I have a very personal connection with too, you know, cause like my uncle got me my first copy when I was eight, when I still mm -hmm. have it. Um, and in the front cover, I have written, I wrote in crayon, if anything should happen to me, I leave this book to my, to my uncle Ralph, um, which Aww. can tell you kind of the more, <laughs> the morbid child I was, um, and grew up to be a morbid adult. Uh, but yeah, and they're both, I think, uh, very sad, both Christmas Carol and Dracula are very, very satisfying, uh, experiences to, to play because there's so many different kinds of characters that are extremely vivid but there's also uh really rich uh emotion emotional journeys within them um and very intense intense mo in moments of intensity uh as well so they're they're a blast to do i love i love both of those i would think dracula would be really hard to do in a one-man play there's so many different characters i mean how many did you play I think I'd have to go back to the script, which I'm going to be doing soon anyway, because I'm doing it in a, in a couple weeks <laughs> at the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion, uh, oh, which nice. is where I did it the first time back in 2011. I'm bring, bringing it back uh, to where I first did it. But I think it's about 12 to 14, uh, something like that. And some of and a lot of those are very or you know, just a couple lines like the Romani woman in the beginning. Um, you know and stuff like that but Drac dracula was a huge challenge to adapt actually i i started it and then i got maybe uh i got maybe to like when we get you know after the jonathan and castle dracula you know the Deme the demeter which is my favorite section of that book mm -hmm. um i haven't seen the new movie yet i need to uh and, but then i got to like mina and lucy like and their thread of the story and i was looking at that and looking at the immensity of the pages before me i was like i have no idea how to do the rest of this and i stopped for a little while uh, but then I brought up the idea after I'd done Christmas Carol at the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion in 2010, which went very well, was like, and they wanted to do something else. And I was like, well, I've been thinking about adapt, adapting Stoke Dracula and doing it as a one-person show. And the exec director was like, oh, that's a great idea. Yes, let's do it and put it on the schedule. So then I had to finish it. <laughs> um, I had no choice, um, yeah. which is sometimes how great thing good things can happen um and it was what got me out of that sort of writer's block with that piece is i went to the rosenbach museum and library in philadelphia which is where stoker's notes are and i you know was got sat in a in a room all by myself um and brought out they brought out like the box the boxes of the notes which are all in plastic of course and you have to wear gloves as you handle them and i what i really wanted to know is I, I asked uh, the librarian, I was like, is there anything in the notes that says why he wrote the book? Because um, mm -hmm. that was something that I thought would really unlock, you know, m my blockage. And she said, no, there's not, there's unfortunately nothing like that. Um, and she asked what I was doing. I said, I'm writing a solo ad adaptation of the book, but I'm only using the text from the novel, which is what I always do uh, when I when I adapt 
uh, novels for solo shows is I only use the original mm. text. It's edited, of course, but like I want to show, I want to honor the writer's words, um, you know, and not deviate from that. So I was going through the notes and what I took from it as I was going through is that you can just feel on those pieces of paper how excited Bram Stoker was about writing and creating this story. He worked on it for seven years, which is longer than he ever worked on any other piece he ever wrote. And there's one page where it has a list of characters and Count Dracula was originally called Count Wampir. But on this uh, piece of paper, he crosses out Wampir, writes Dracula above it. And then on the top of the page at different angles, he writes Dracula, Dracula, Count Dracula. You know, almost like you, you write the name of like the person you have a crush on when you're in like middle school <laughs> or something. Um, and like you could just in, the, I think that was the moment, like seeing that page and like you can see in that second, like he had this idea, I'm going to change it. This is perfect. This is the name. And like, there was something about that that just unlocked the rest of it for me. And I knew what I had, like what I had to focus on and what, and what I had to do um, to complete the theatrical piece. Tell us about doing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Did, that must have required a pretty good amount of makeup, I would think. Actually, no. Um, no. Yeah, that's the, so, and that's the, uh, the thing about the, pe the solo pieces I do is that I don't, I never do any makeup and I never change costume. Um, really? That it's what, it's all, it's all in how I use my body and, and change and the change, changing the voice in different ways, um, which I think is fun. Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, was a really special piece for me to work on it, again it wasn't my idea to do it uh the Mütter museum in philadelphia actually commissioned me to do it um they were like hey we because they see uh, someone who worked there had seen my dracula i think mm -hmm. and they're like hey we think it would be great if you did a one-man version of mary shelley's frankenstein and do and the way they wanted it was that it wouldn't just be in one room in the museum building it would travel through, di through three different spaces in the building um, as oh, the wow. story went on. Wow. So like it started uh, in the mm -hmm. lobby, which is white, like this white marble lobby for the beginning sections in the Arctic, then moved into the museum itself with all, you know, the exhibits on display for when we move into Victor Frankenstein's story and the creation. And then when we moved into the creature's story, uh, it moved up into... Um, on the second floor, what's called the Mitchell Ballroom, which is this big cavernous space because the creature takes Victor up to the mountains um, and then went back again to the lobby for the final section in the Arctic. Uh, so that was sort of the, you know, I knew that that was what was what they wanted. And I didn't have the same relationship with Shelley's novel that I had with, say, Christmas Carol and Dracula. Um, I, I'd read it when I was younger, but I don't remember it really making that much an impression on me the the films did like the universal films of frankenstein made a huge impression right so when i came back to read shelley's book again i was just really wonderfully blown away by it because you know what for me like what she like that book is like a shakespearean tragedy like that book is a tragedy um yeah. you know and 
there was something and I immediately saw how how I could adapt it and that it is it is stories within stories within stories that are being told you know it is captain captain walton in the arctic first talking to us and write the audience and writing to his sister then rescues victor frankenstein victor frankenstein is telling his story to captain walton the creature tells his story to victor frankenstein like so they're keeping it the focus on those three characters and their voices mm. and how their personalities and their uh emotional needs and some and very often failings echo one another i found really uh powerful uh to work on um and that's a p that's the piece i've probably done the least i think uh is frankenstein Uh, and the last time i did it uh it was filmed actually um by uh, kyle cassidy and brian siano uh and broadcast on uh, a zoom thing the rosenbach did but there's a link to that film of it on my website that you can watch uh oh, nice. but that, that's a piece i've retired uh, i don't plan on doing it again um unless someone wants to pay me a lot of money to do it in, the, in that <laughs> case i'll do it uh but that piece you know like we were talking about with uh with the dot with the Dahmer play earlier like that that piece frankenstein is a piece that I never really found the way to do it that did not emotionally devastate me by the end Mm. because like the way that book ends, like there is, there's no resolution. There's no catharsis, you know, like Victor dies and the creature is there. And like the father that he's always wanted this love and recognition from is just gone. And now the creatures basically I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone in the world. I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost. And like, it just, which I think is, again, her writing is so powerful. Um, the ending of that, of that book, you know, but it, it re- it does, it's one of those books. And like, I found like performing it, like where it doesn't like you end it and you're like, okay, all right, let, I'm moving on with my day. Like it, you, you know, you finish reading that and you're like, Ooh, Oh, okay. I need to sit with this for a moment. <laughs> um, which again is is a tribute to her brilliance as a writer. Yeah. You know, in addition to all the work that you've done on stage, uh, the books that you've written, you've also done some wonderful uh, film reviews on your podcast. And with this being our first show that's uh, during the month of October in 2023, we thought it might be kind of fun to do kind of a Halloween countdown of your favorite mm-hmm. horror films. So we're going to do quick capsules on your 10 favorites, and we're going to go in reverse order uh, from the 10th best to the one that you like the most and some interesting choices. Starting at number 10 is the 1974, the original version of Black Christmas. Uh, it's not the first slasher movie, but it's certainly one of the early ones. What do you like about Black Christmas? I mean, I think Black Christmas A is the best Christmas horror movie ever made, which is a, a subgenre of horror that I really love. I did a whole series on my Hitchens on Horror podcast called 12 Nights of Terror, where I where it was just highlighting Christmas horror movies, because uh, there's so many delightful ones. But I think Black Christmas is not only the best of that, subgenre i think it it is one of the best horror movies ever made and is so 
innovative. Um, you know, it's four four years before John Carpenter's Halloween. Like you said, certainly not the fir the first slasher movie, but what Black Christmas does that I think is really interesting. Um, it it uses it uses the POV camera for the killer. Um, it's not the first movie to do that. Peeping Tom did that before. Mm -hmm. um, that's also a good movie. Uh, but it has the POV of the killer, uh, and you never really see the killer except for one moment in that film. And you also never find out who the killer is, um, which I think is such a brave choice. Like the movie gives you some clues as to who it might be, but you never really know. It's never really explained. And it captures the Christmas atmosphere really wonderfully and i love how that movie centers uh its fe its female characters and how complex they are you know they're not the cardboard you know characters you get in some of the slasher movies of the 80s which i i love me some 80s slasher movies don't get me wrong mm -hmm. uh but there's a really there's a richness to black christmas that i think is very rare to find um in in that type in that type of horror movie and i think is Re has really created a lot of echoes uh, since it was released. Um, if, if you've never seen Black Christmas, definitely, definitely check it out. Awesome. Early film for Margot Kidder as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, and she won the, the Genie Award, which is the Canadian Oscar. She won the, the Genie Award for Best Actress for Black Christmas really? uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, number nine is another 1970s film, a little bit later, 1979, Nosferatu the Vampire, with uh, a guy who was really criminal in his behavior but was a wonderfully talented actor, Klaus Kinski. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, of course, love, love the original 1922 Nosferatu um, by F.W. Murnau, um, one of the early uh, queer horror filmmakers, um, which not a lot of people talk about. Uh, and like the 1922 version feels almost like a like you're watching a documentary at times. It feels like it could be real. And Max Schreck as Count Orlock or Dracula, depending on the version of subtitles you watch, like looks like a real monster. Um, it's a deeply unsettling film. Uh, I love Nosferatu the Vampire even more though, um, because I feel like Werner Herzog, A1, like thought the original Nosferatu was the best German film that was ever made. So he wanted to pay tribute to that. Um, mm. And he does in a really incredible way. Like, I think the, the look of the movie is just, beautiful but also incredibly eerie like the op you know the opening credits for it really set the tone the opening credits are the close-ups of these um these mummies of mummified remains of adult of adult men and women also of children um that mm. are in a town in mexico which na the name of it escapes me but they're on display in a museum and werner herzog just took them out of the display cases and put them where he wanted uh really? to film the opening credit sequence which would wow. not fly today um <laughs> but it really it it's such a frightening and disturbing opening credits because it it for me like it's almost like what i imagine like the basement of dracula's castle to look like just these, you know, remains of all these old victims. And Klaus Kinski is just as monstrous looking as Max Schreck in the 1922 version, but Klaus Kinski also brings in 
that sort of uh, that love that reluctant vampire kind of thing that we've talked that has been talked about a lot on this podcast that I think Dark Shadows invented, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but brings but brings that aspect to it as well, which adds a different flavor. And there the scenes where you know, because in in Nosferatu, Dracula also is brings vampirism to the town, but he also brings the plague, the Black Death, to the town because it, there are these hundreds of rats that he brings. And there are scenes where, like um, Lucy, played by the brilliant Isabel Johnny, is walking through the town square, and there are all these rats, and there are people eating at this long table outside, you know, because mm. they know they're going to die, and then you just see like the town square just empty um so it's just a really spooky film it is i i think it's the best vampire film ever made um wow. that one you mentioned the rats so many rats i mean it's it's almost nauseating um mm -hmm. tracy i don't know how you feel about rats i'm not a big fan no <laughs> it's hard to get it's really hard to get through some of those scenes i mean it's really powerful yeah and one one of the bits of trivia that i I love about that movie is that Werner Herzog he imported all these rats, and he actually and again this would not fly today, uh, but he he wanted he had them painted black because he wanted them to look more imposing and like you know black hmm. rats black death, but the rats hmm. licked all the paint off so they're like gray or, or brown in the film. Um, but really? he tried to paint them and they decided no we don't like this. Oh my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which again wouldn't do that now. At number eight, you've got an absolute classic, Psycho, from 1960. Yeah, and Alfred Hitchcock, along with David Lynch, is another one of my favorite directors. Um, Hitchcock said something um, that I love. I, I, it was an interview he did. I can't remember if it was the Francois Truffaut interview or not, but someone asked him, what is, what is the logic behind all of your films? And Hitchcock said to put the audience through it. Hmm. And I love that. Um, I think that is such a key thing for horror, no matter what genre that you're doing it in, whether it's in writing or theater or film or television, audio, anything, is that you want to put the, the audience through an experience and then they come through on the other side back into the light. And they're like, oh, wow, um, that that was that was intense um but they're okay but they're okay at the end you know there because there's that catharsis in horror uh and i think psycho is really where he where he perfected that um i think i you know it, it's just such a brilliantly directed and acted film wonderfully written script uh adapted by joseph stefano from the book by robert block and it's you know it if you ever have the chance to see Psycho in an actual movie theater, I highly recommend it because that score by Bernard Herrmann, like when you're in a theater with like that sound system and those like violin and there's like the cellos start, like you can feel it in your bones, oh, wow. like physically. And it just, it's so, it's even more powerful than watching it at home. Um, but yeah, I think Psycho does a really effective job of you know again it's so uh like so many of the films of the 60s and 70s are really responses to and and i think horror always is actually horror is always a response to what is happening in the world what is happening in our society and psycho is a really kind of beautiful 
portrait of that time like it was made in 1959 released in 1960 so like it's right on the you know in that transition between what we what is you know romanticized as the 50s of like oh this perfect picket fence you know very very wholesome you know no no bad things happening here to the interrogation in the in the 60s of like no there was actually bad stuff happening underneath here yeah. And Psycho, I, you know, underneath of what looks like it's normal and wholesome. And I think Psycho is just an extremely powerful um, distillation of that moment in time. Tracy, I'd like you to introduce film number seven, because this is one of your favorites, and it's from the Stephen King subgenre. Oh, my goodness. That would be The Shining. It is <laughs> truly one of my favorite, favorite films. And I, I love personally Stephen King as an author. So mm -hmm. if if you would like to talk about that, that would be great. Yeah, The Shining, I mean, as I'm sure like everyone knows by now, like Stephen King very famously hates <laughs> Kubrick's version of The Shining. Absolutely loathes it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, which is and he has his reasons why, because The Shining was a very personal book to him. Yes. Um, and like, and Kubrick does do different things with it. But I think it, The Shining, Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining is one of the rare instances, for me anyway, where the film adaptation is better than the book. Mm -hmm. um, as good, as mm -hmm. very good of a book The Shining is. Uh, what Kubrick does, like just with the set design and the camera angles and that e and that eerie music, uh, it just takes it to a whole other level. And I, for me, I think The Shining is one of the most successful movies in terms of uh, depicting the appearance of ghosts, how I, I personally have experienced it in life, where like, you know where in the shining like it's like you know danny's riding the little bike around the hallway and turns a corner and then the twins are just there they're just suddenly there yes and you know and like they they look real like they're not like wispy like ooh phantoms you know they're two little girls they're just there but you know in your gut that there's something wrong about what you're seeing that there's something wrong about them being there mm -hmm. uh and i think that movie just captures that so well where you know it's not it's not a thing where you know ag again like it's the stereotypical wisp wispy ghost thing so no they're they're just suddenly there and then they're not mm -hmm. um you know and i it, it's terrifying like i I've done. I've covered The Shining twice on my Hitchens on Horror podcast, both in the '62 horror movie series and then again on Twelve Nights of Terror. Because mm -hmm. The Shining's also a Christmas movie. Um, <laughs> it is, um, uh, and I'm going to cover it a third time uh, because I do. I eventually, I think my next big season after I finish the Friday the Thirteenth series is I want to do uh, examine the Haunted House movie because that's my favorite. That is my favorite. Uh, subgenre of horror um i don't know why but i've always been very into haunted houses and i'm going to talk about the shining again um and i think that is also a testament to how great a film that is and has great a director kubrick wasn't it as horrible as he was to shelly duvall right. um yeah. even though god she's brilliant in that movie um so good uh but like you you can't like there there's so many different things in kubrick's the shining like it's one of those movies like you could talk about and study forever and never really 
run out of things to talk about. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Absolutely amazing. agree. Just as a curiosity note, did you see uh, Dr. Sleep, which was like a cut, not really a part two, but kind of a part two. Did you have a chance to watch that film? I haven't yet. And I, I haven't read the book either, but both okay. have been on my on my bucket list for ages. Would you would you recommend Dr. Sleep? I really would both in the book form right. as well as the film form. Absolutely. Awesome. That's good to hear. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think Dr. Sleep is terrific. I think oh, it is, is right, on the, right on the money there. All right, let's continue. Yeah, Mike, Mike Flanagan does a great job with Stephen King. Yeah. Mike Flanagan, there's there's somebody that we're trying to get for this show. Stay yes. tuned on oh that. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Fing uh, fingers crossed for you. Yes. Yeah. Number six on your list is one of my favorites from 1968, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, kind of similar but different to how we were talking about The Shining. I think Rosemary's Baby is very special in a way because I think it is perhaps the only the only instance I can think of where the ad the film adaptation of the book is absolutely perfect. Mm. Um, Ira Levin's book is an amazing read. I remember when I first read it, you know, when I was an adolescent, like I read it in an afternoon and couldn't put it down. And the, and the film of Rosemary's Baby is so faithful to the book in all the best ways, including like the magazines that are meant that are mentioned in the book are the same magazines in the film. Um, costumes are the same are the same as they were in the book, but it you know, but it feels alive in its own way. And I think, again, you know, similar to Psycho, Rosemary's Baby is such an effective treatment of what was going on in the world at the, at the time like in the late in the you know latter part of the 60s where there's that whole you know thing like you know cover of time magazine is god dead like there's the big this immense questioning of of religion and its place in this increasingly modern world and rosemary's baby takes you know these two this or this ordinary all Amer all american couple um who has everything going for them and drops them into the middle of a nightmare that is happening in the modern world and i think that movie is immensely aided uh one by its performances especially mia farrow um as rosemary who is in a long line of people that I believe should have won Oscars for horror movies, but of course they didn't because the Oscars hate horror movies, but at least Ruth Gordon won Best Supporting Actress for it. That's something yeah. she deserved that. Uh, so performances are, amaz are amazing in that film and feel very real. Like they feel like real people that you might know. Um, but it's also very immensely aided in it, the choosing to set the apartment building they, they live in uh, and having it be the Dakota uh, in New York City, which then when it was made, like didn't have kind of the sinister reputation that we look back on it now, you know, with the murder of John Lennon and everything, because that hadn't sure. happened yet. But like, there's just something about that Gothic architecture of the Dakota, you know, a very grand, but also clearly becoming run down and getting older, overlooking this beautiful park um like it's the perfect creepy setting for rosemary's baby um yeah. and the ending of that film is one of the most incredible endings in horror yeah 
At number five, uh, a movie that when it came out was a little bit controversial because people had really never seen anything that was so rough and raw in some ways, uh, but it's certainly a classic now. The 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> the first time I saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I was in high school and I rented it and I watched it, you know, in my in my room late, late at night, all the lights off and the movie ended and I just sat there just stunned in silence for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause like that move, talk about taking you on a ride. That movie takes you on a very, a very extreme ride. Um, but not in the ways that many people think of it. You know, it, that movie's at, until you get towards the end, there's almost no blood in that movie. You don't, you actually do not see people like being chopped up and dismembered and like put on meat hooks with the hook going through the flesh. You think you do, Mm -hmm. but you actually don't like Toby Hooper, um, brilliantly directed that film where, you know, it's again, like where these extreme things are happening, but you're not seeing it happen directly, but your imagination finishes that image for you. And that for me, I think is the hallmark of truly great horror artistry is when you engage the audience's imagination in some in some way no matter what medium of horror we're talking about and texas chainsaw massacre also i think is thought of as you know this very sort of grimy dirty ugly looking movie but it's actually a very beautiful movie um especially like in the restorations that have been done like it is beautiful to look at um the way it's photographed uh, and it's just sometimes the thing that that movie is showing you within this beautiful framing is mm. grotesque. And I think it really is the very first shot of the film where it's late afternoon, sun is sun is in this like Texas fe- uh, field and the sun is setting and it's sort of gold tinged with red and it's just beautiful, beautiful countryside. And then you realize that what the camera is slowly pulling in on what you're looking at is a a corpse that has been dug up from the graveyard and put up like a scarecrow. Um, and is, and the face is just rotting. And like that Mm. tells you right from the beginning within the first, like two minutes of the film, what kind of experience you're going to have. And like, that is great directing. Agreed. Uh, number four, is the film that really was the first one that freaked me out. I watched it alone in my house at night when I was still a child. It was a foolish decision, but a great mm-hmm. film, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, uh, and I mean, both released in nineteen, both released in nineteen sixty-eight, Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby, which I think is interesting because they're bo- they both are uh, kind of telling very similar stories, like we talked about, of these ordinary people that are in a world that sudden that suddenly becomes a nightmare and again night of the living dead i i mean it's so famous and so talked about uh, at at this point justifiably so that you know it's tempting to say oh to say like oh no it's it's over overrated it's day it's dated but it's not though um like watching watching that film and the performances of it again it 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 feels like you're watching a documentary and like the script is amazing like it's almost like you're watching a play it like that movie could be an amazing play actually 
um, because so much because it's all about these different people being trapped in this house with this you know immensely terrifying force outside but also you know the horror within within each of them you know with the tension yeah. they have and the and the fighting that they they just can't help themselves you know but but fight each other even though there's a much bigger threat outside and i think neither living dead is really powerful and worthy of note because it shows you on film things that were truly transgressive for the time that you had not seen before like you hadn't seen you hadn't seen a little girl zombie kill and eat her mother like that's just not something you'd seen in a movie before um and it has just so many images of it are indelible and I think one of the great things about Night of the Living Dead, again, you know, being made and released when it was in the late 1960s with the lead character, Dwayne Jones, being a being a black actor, even though uh, he wasn't uh, the character was not written to be none of the characters are written to be any specific race Mm -hmm. at all. They just cast the best actors who auditioned and Dwayne Jones was by far the best actor who auditioned for that role. But I think, you know, it's refreshing and revolutionary for for the time that you know you think you think the movie is going to be about you know barbara the the blonde white lady in trouble you know that she's going to be the heroine but she spends most of the movie kind of catatonic almost and it's Dwayne jones Mm -hmm. who's true who's truly the hero of this film who is the leader of it and that of course leads to an immensely powerful ending uh to neither to night of the living dead um that you know it's a great example uh, as all as i think all the great truly great horror movies do is it you know it's it's a commentary on the time it uses this story of like you know as you know they called them ghouls they didn't use the term zombies when they made the film that came later but these zombies Mm -hmm. and using that using that setting to tell a story that is very revealing about human nature and also about you know the state of racism uh in the united states you know in the late 1960s um immensely powerful still horrifying film to watch there's still visuals in neither living dead that unsettle you and that's a really great testament to the achievement of the team that made it. Absolutely. All right. Three films to go in your top 10. At number three, this is a film that ventures into sci-fi, but it's certainly horror too. Great movie, Alien. Yeah. Ooh, I love Alien. Um, it is one of it is one of the movies that actually really scares me. I actually don't watch it a lot um, because it really mm-hmm. it really gets to me still, even though I've seen it multiple times. Um, and like you said, like it, it's sci- you know it's sci-fi, you know. But I I always argue that a- that the first Alien movie is a horror movie first. You know, the the ones that follow it are definitely more in the in the sci-fi. Um, feel but alien for me like it's a haunted house movie in space um it's a you know again really really great writing and directing and and acting because you know the character the characters all feel very normal and real like they could be working 
in in an office or a factory some somewhere you know in the in the 20th century but instead they're on a spaceship far far in the future but they're still people we recognize which is so important you know especially in a film like alien where when you have hr geiger you know doing mm -hmm. your creature designing your creature effects like you know things that again nothing like that has ever had ever been seen on a in film before something that just visually terrifying uh and unsettling in so in so many different ways um and that it the mo the movie shows i think really admirable restraint as i think all the best haunted house movies do which we'll get to in a little bit uh of like you don't see the alien a lot in the first alien movie like you see you see flashes right. of it you hear you hear it but you you know the the film saves like the big close-ups of the alien for very specific moments so most of the time it's people wandering around this ship in the dark and they know this thing is there this thing that is stalking them and is going and has been killing the crew and is coming for them and you just you like you're right there with the characters we're like oh my god where is it is it in that corner is it up is it up on the ceiling above me you know mm -hmm. it's it's so just absolutely terrifying um it, it, for me personally and you know i think also as one of the greatest um taglines a movie has ever had uh, which was of course famously in space no one can hear you scream yes. um yeah mm. 1979 <laughs> the sum that summer was a great summer for horror like alien was out the first phantasm was out the salem's lot television miniseries happens like there's a lot of great horror happened in 1979 and yeah. also after the vampire too at number that's right that's right at number two a pure haunted house film from um well it was from an era when color films were being made but the decision here was made to make it in black and white that certainly turned out very well great film also the haunting the best haunted house movie ever made in my opinion um i don't there's nothing that touches it there are lots of other really great haunted house movies out there um but for me the haunting is the very best one um that i've never seen duplicated uh again really great adaptation of a really amazing book the haunting of hill house by shirley mm -hmm. jackson um really take taking the book and translating it to the screen extremely well and with a different slant um because the screenwriter of the haunt of the movie the haunting actually spoke with shirley jackson and a and asked before he was about to write the script and asked her like were you thinking that this this book is really the story of a woman slowly losing her mind and this is all in her mind and shirley jackson paused and said no but that's a damn good idea. Nice. Um, and and originally, the original uh, treatment for the screenplay for the haunting was going to make that very explicit. That like you would see the main character Eleanor at at the end, like actually in a mental institution, and like the characters who've been in the house are the doctors and nurses who are treating her, and the banging that you hear on the walls in the house is like her getting electroshock treatment very very literal luckily they didn't go that route they decided to keep you know to keep it um you know in in the setting of the original book but really highlighting walking that tightrope which rosemary's baby does in novel and film as well of is is this 
you know, are these things really happening or is this person going insane or is it both of those things? Uh, and The Haunting, I think, succeeds so well as a haunted house movie in A, it starts off the way every great haunted house movie should start off with give us the lore within the first like 10 minutes. Like set us set us up like what why is this house haunted what ha what happened you know what are the what are the ghosts and then introduce and then the story goes along its way so already from the beginning you're on you're like oh this this is creepy this place um this bad place um but it also does the haunting does the great thing that you never see what is haunting the house you hear things you hear the pounding on the walls that sounds like a cannonball you know, bouncing down the stairs and on and on the door and being thrown at the doors. You hear vo you hear voices whispering in the dark. You know, Eleanor. You know, is, thinks she's holding Theodora's hand, but Theodora's across the room. Um, so she's like, "Whose hand was I holding?" And even late in the film, the closest you get to seeing what the what is actually haunting the house is the door to the room where all the characters have barricaded themselves inside of starts to bend outward like some like it's made out of you know, like clay and someone's just pushing it which is an amazing effect for 1963 i don't i, I don't know how they yeah. did that but like and you're just at that point in the film you're you, you like it the film has worked so well to frighten you that when like that door starts bulging like Oh God, please, please don't show me what's behind that door. Um, which I think is a, a you know a bit of a way of filming horror that has kind of gone out of fashion a lot of the times. Because in a lot of movies, especially nowadays, you're like, yeah, show me what's <laughs> behind the door, show me the th the thing. And there's a place and time and time for that too, you know. But I the I just think the haunting is an exquisitely frightening movie, and it doesn't show you anything it's all sounds yeah. and voices again it engages your imagination what could be there in the dark so good that brings us to number one this is a film that maybe a lot of our audience hasn't heard of or hasn't seen but it's a very powerful movie from the silent film era it's called hexen yeah for me uh and i and i know this is kind of you don't see this movie as like a number per, like people's number one horror movie pick a lot but for me hexen is the best horror movie ever made um uh, hexen it's a sweet swedish silent film um hexen is swedish for the witch um and it is a film that examines you know witchcraft and the persecution of women being thought of as witches throughout time uh and it was actually made over a period of three years uh they started making it in 1919 finished it in 1921 was released in 1922 the same year as the uh fw murnau's nosferatu and like knowing mm. when that film was made and watching it now there are things that they do in that movie, like shots that they do and effects that they do, that you almost cannot believe it was made. That, like there are special effects that Hexen does that you wouldn't see in American films for another 20, 30 years. Um, it's really? like, it's it's really, you know, and again, like lends itself to thinking that like, 
you're almost like watching a documentary at times. And the film was, the director was inspired to make Hexen because he was doing research about witchcraft and he came across the, the, the old book, the Malaeus Maleficarum, which was the book, the book that was basically written like, here's how you identify witches and here's all the ways you can torture them and kill them. Uh, and he thought that the Malaeus Maleficarum was the most evil book that had ever been written. And he was, became passionate about making this film. Hexen is a film made out of deep rage over what happened to these women in history. And you can tell that. And you, and there are two versions of the film that exist. Uh, the version that most people are familiar with that has been more widely available over the decades uh, is actually a 90-minute abridged version of the movie called Witchcraft Through the Ages. Uh, which is narrated by William S. Burroughs and has this sort of very 60s score um, put onto it. But the original version of Hexen has, in the past 10 years or so, been fully restored with its original score to its original length. And it's a, mas it's a masterpiece and it's deeply frightening. I think it's probably the most frightening depiction of the, de of the devil uh, as a character that I've ever seen in film. Um, even better than Tim Curry and Legend. Um, and mm. it, it starts off like you're watching a lecture, but then it moves into these different scenes uh, throughout different time periods of these women practicing witchcraft or being accused of witchcraft. Uh, one of the most poignant ones is an, as a very, very old woman uh, who's accused of being a witch and is, is eventually executed. And she just has this amazing face this live like wrinkled lived in face of sorrow and she wasn't an actor she was a, a woman that the director found on the street and was like you're in this movie uh but she when they had a break in filming she was talking to the director and she said you know the devil is real he sits on my bed every night wow um hmm. And the final scene of Hexen is in the is in the modern day is in like 1990 is in the early, is in the early 20s with you know women going to the doctor oh you're hysterical let me prescribe this for you so it, it draws the line all the way from like the you know centuries ago how these women were treated hmm. as witches to the present day with modern medicine um, it it's an amazing film. Uh, has so much to say is sadly still very relevant and i think one of one of the most frightening and also accurate depictions of witchcraft in film um it's if you have not seen it definitely seek it out make sure you make sure you see the uncut version of it so hexen at the top of josh's list his top 10 films as we count down toward the halloween holiday Josh, before we let you go, I want to ask you about any upcoming books you're working on, upcoming performances that you have, plays that you're going to be doing. Tell us what's up next for you. Sure thing. Uh, so I'm in the process, I'm in sort of the home stretch now, I think, of uh, writing my third book, uh, which is going to be called Eerie Delaware, uh, Chilling Tales from the First State. I was born and raised in Delaware, and Delaware, even though it's very small and is very often overlooked, has really incredible and fascinating history and folklore. And my first two books, The Haunted History of Delaware and of Philadelphia books, were you know exclusively about, about 
the haunted history about ghost stories primarily. Uh, but Erie, Delaware is uh, a little bit different in that, like there there are go there are ghost stories, but there's also folklore. There's uh, local legends. Uh, there's also true uh, couple true crime cases as well. So it's sort of more more uh, all encompassing of sort of like the creepy the creepy side of of you know of a place uh and it's been i think the mo my mo the most fun to write so far i think because there's such variety of different stories there's stories about aliens too uh in there uh so i'm working on that uh, that is hopefully it's going to be with arcadia publishing as well uh that is hopefully going to come out june july of 2024 uh is the plan so i'm working on that uh also Want to get back to my Hitchens on Horror podcast. I'm currently in the midst, as I mentioned briefly, uh, of doing a deep dive into the Friday the 13th series, which is my favorite slasher movie series from the 80s. And I argue in the podcast it is the best one, um, better than the Halloween franchise, better than Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, so you can li mm. so you can listen listen to those and hear we talk about why. And in for those and moving forward with the Hitchens on Horror podcast, I'm really moving towards sort of the classic horror host format where I do an in where you know it's designed the episodes are designed for you to watch the movie along with me. So I do an introduction. I say when it gets to 20 minutes and 13 seconds, pause, turn the podcast back on, you know, taking breaks because I, mm -hmm. I I grew up. Um, you know, in that sort of second wave, like instead of Famous Monsters of Filmland, it was Fangoria for me. You know, instead of, you know, Zachary, it was Elvira and Joe Bob Briggs, uh, who I love and idolize. Um, so horror hosting is always yeah. something I've been really interested in doing. So that, you know, and I'm doing that more with the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, once I finish the Friday 13th series, I have two more episodes on that to go. And then I'm going to start the one what i'm going to what i'm calling uh 100 years of haunted houses um that go that goes from on you know haunted house movies from the 1920s all the way up to the present day to 2022 um because i always think there's so much to be learned in talking about horror films in in order of their release you know because i think it's fascinating how the genre changes and rebirths itself over time so look out for that and I am doing my Stoker's Dracula uh, for just three performances at the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, I am doing it Friday, October 20th at uh, 7 p.m. and on Saturday, uh, October 21st at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. Um, and the website is EbenezerMaxwellMansion.org. It is Philadelphia's only authentically restored Victorian house museum. Um, perfect place to hear classic 19th century vampire tale oh wow very nice josh hitchens is an author actor paranormal historian all things horror he's involved with it one way or another josh this has been terrific thank you very much for your time thank you both so much for having me it's been thank an you. honor we thank Josh. We thank uh, Tracy Asteria, as always, for her help as co-host and producer of the show. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you to all of our listeners. We appreciate you joining us in this Museum of the Macabre. Please join us next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery. <laughs>